Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's a lot of and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. known fact about my guest today, he and his longtime collaborator Duncan Sheik met because they were both Buddhists who wanted to chant together. And from that original meeting came Spring Awakening and so many other artistic projects. And then Stephen Sater, who is my brilliant guest today, has just written so many beautiful pieces of art, poetry, novels, plays, screenplays, teleplays, and musicals. And I'm so grateful to have had this time with him today. And I also really encourage you to listen to his most recent project, an album he collaborated on with the great Burt Backrack. Welcome, Stephen Sater, to the podcast. A-OK. My guest today is Stephen Sater. Stephen is a Tony, Grammy, and Olivia Award-winning lyricist, librettist, author, poet, screenwriter. He and Duncan Sheik wrote the musical Spring Awakening. He and Duncan, along with Jesse Nelson, also wrote the musical Alice by Heart. Most recently, he and the great Bird Backrack partnered to create the concept album Some Lovers with a cast of star-studded, gorgeous Broadway voices. I think I know Stephen more than any of my 200 and something previous guests um, because of our early lives in the theater together, running around New York, babies that we were. Um, Stephen Sater, welcome to Little Known Facts, my friend. Alana, so, so, I mean, so amazing to see you and to reel through time thinking about working on us. It was asylum. Do you remember? Yes. Asylum. It was at Naked Angels, and it was Michael Mayer, who of course went on to direct Spring Awakening. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, and and I really love thinking about that time because, well, when I think about you, I think God, the hunger, ambition, Mm. talent, Mm. creativity, and generosity of spirit that you brought Mm. into that room in the nineties is still the way you walk into every work relationship that you enter. Everyone I know, and I know one million people who have been in your things or directed your things, 
And what everyone comes away saying is that they felt like they did their best work because you gave them permission to show up and do their best work. And that is not a small thing. That's one of the most remarkable things anyone's ever said to me. I mean, professionally, you know what I mean, about my professional life. You know what? So what it brings up on me is how remarkable this pandemic has been for me in terms of the work I've done with new directors, directors whom I'd never met, younger directors, young career directors. And I have multiple projects with people whom I now like love and depend on whom I've never met in person, who have these virtual relationships to where we become close. Teddy Bergman, do you know Teddy Bergman? He's directing, uh, we're working together on Murder at the Gates, Cy Alicon. These are younger directors coming and I are working on The Nightingale with Duncan. Well, there are, and there, there are multiple projects I could talk about because like one I'm working on, you know, Our Lady J and our workouts, but she and I have now met and become good friends and we're working on a new musical with Duncan. But so much has, I guess, because we stayed in. And also revisiting Spring Awakening in this benefit concert. So for you to have that kind of reunion amidst this deeply painful, troubling, scary time, um, so much beautiful art was brought forth. It's funny that you talk about sort of all of these relationships with new directors that you've had. There's a strange intimacy. You know, I had been on an occasional Zoom call, maybe Skype in my yeah. life. Yeah. You know, I've had to audition with directors who weren't in the country. I mean, there were ways in which technology was available to us, but it it is so incredible to me that virtually we have continued to be able to make work and you have really done that. I mean, I don't know, we'll, we'll talk about some lovers, which is maybe your newest, the, the newest baby you've given birth to publicly. It sounds like you have a lot going on behind the scenes for us to all look forward to. I think as we speak, Spring Awakening is at the Alameda in London. Have they been able to remain uh, performing? Open. You're open? open. Or it's a it's and I want to say actually that maybe the best example I could give of what we're talking about was my work with Rupert Gould, who's in London, and we worked on Spring Awakening. We also have a film project we're working on together. But I was throughout from the beginning of lockdown when New York and London were the epicenters of this pandemic. Yeah, we were zooming daily, and as you say, I had been on. I had actually skyped a fair amount, but Zoom I had rarely ever been on. And it became this regular part of my day. And now we have this production. Those are the two things. I've lived like in such an isolated way in my apartment. Because, you know, I've had a, a coastal life for years going back to New York, LA. Here I was by myself with my books, really focused, really working. And then I came out for the two most extraordinary events, this the reunion concert. 15, it was a once-in-a-lifetime event for all of us. We could yeah. talk about it. it was so unbelievably emotional. And then to go from that three days later to London to see this complete... It's, it's such a reinvention, what Rupert's done, and I was part of it with him. I was in yeah. my hotel in London writing new lyrics and revising scenes of Spring Awakening. It was crazy. So and, you have revisited that text and that yeah. show. Yeah. Were there things that you 
had always, I mean, there've been many productions all over the world and revivals yeah. and Deaf West. I mean, it, it has been reinvented and reimagined by so many beautiful artists. Was yeah. there was there always something, I mean, I remember Michael Mayer, our beloved Michael, calling me and saying, I'm working on this thing at the Atlantic Theater Company. Will you come early? I think it's, I think it's, I think it's fantastic. I want, I want eyes because I think I'm doing something I've never done before. And I wow. remember going in and going, uh, yes, in fact, this is something actually no one's ever done before. Um, and I have not one note except can I come every night and see it for the rest of my life <laughs> and still listen to it every day. And my, and now my kids listen to it. And there's something wow. about like that one musical and the number of times I've used it in preparation for my own performance. But I'm curious oh when gosh. you were able to sit with Rupert and work on it again, has there always been something you wanted to rework or was it based on what's going on in the world today? It was the latter. Okay. It was it was um, the production um, in London right now. People there were calling it a bespoke production. They, they call about bespoke when something is hand tailored for someone mm -hmm. like they design a shirt for you. It's a tailoring term, and um, I don't think I would incorporate these changes in future productions. But okay. they 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 were for this moment we're in, and for Rupert's vision of the piece, and for the work he and I had done together. And um, so it, they were not things, I, Spring Awakening is finished, you know, it's complete. I, however, now, so we, but we replaced the opening song of Act Two with a song from Off Broadway, which had never been heard, which probably you heard at the Atlantic, which is sure. never the UK. Yeah. Um, we added two reprises. I, had, I did work on scenes to kind of bring the young women up to date a bit to give Bedlam more agency and also to bring it into this moment of youth activism. And the, you know, for the entire cast who are young, um, it was their first show since the pandemic struck. And for many of them, it was their first production, professional production. So it was so remarkable to be with them. Rupert's really turned um, totally fucked into an anthem of someone was calling it in the Guardian like the 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 um, the COVID generation, <laughs> you know, the COVID. Because I mean, how bad has this? Been? It's been terrible for all of us, but for young people, yeah, you have them in your house, so you yeah. know. Yeah. I mean, it's just been so agonizing. Yeah, and um, to see those kids released and out on stage, so it was really for that. However, I'm going now to say, to get to the end of your question, I just wrote an email which I have held back sending him. There are two little things in Spring Awakening that I had never changed. They're tiny. One is a tiny line. One is a tiny lyric. And I was about to say to Rupert, if we should have the fortune that our show has a future life, what about these ideas? Um, but, um, you know, I had made changes when we opened the show in London back in the day, whatever year that was, let's say it was 2010. Yeah. Uh, and around there. And Michael was there. Michael directed it. And I implemented changes to the show, which I wanted to do, which, in fact, I said to him and, and which were we then incorporated in the national tour and then belatedly incorporated into the Broadway production and which are part of what's licensed. 
And I said to Michael, do we want to incorporate these into the concert? And he said, no, we should do exactly what we did. Well, I, I have two themes, I guess, I want to talk to you about. One is, I think so much about, you know, for, for anyone who has followed you, not just as an artist, but as a human, they know that a lot of your life was spent in isolation due to either illness as a young person or uh, something that could have been tragic in terms of we might have lost you, but your apartment was on fire. You jumped and you had to heal in isolation for a very long time. These are just parts of your biography, poorly written on Wikipedia, beautifully <laughs> written in articles with real journalists, right? So you are someone unlike most of us when you describe this moment or you know, totally fucked as an anthem for young people at this moment. You have been so inside a time in your life, chapters of your life of great isolation and quarantine. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit what it has been like as someone who has personally experienced it, watching communities globally dealing with something you you were forced to deal with at a very early age and then later in your young adult life. Oh, that is such a remarkable question. Well, first, I would say that for me, I had had an apprenticeship in isolation. Mm -hmm. as you said. I had yeah. spent so much time in it that I was able to um, just be in gear, to focus, to write. I have so, well, we all have so many friends who um, performers and directors and producers who couldn't do their work, but I also have a lot of writer friends, some of whom thrived, but some of whom really needed the human interaction or were just blocked or were in a dark place or I was able to just focus but I did um write um a kind of poetically ambitious this longer poem I've wanted to write which was roused by the feelings you're talking about which was around the globe seeing communities of isolated individuals and death-struck individuals and illness-struck individuals and whole nations that were so um, under siege and governments in denial. So, so um, I don't know that I brought my, I suppose you're right. I guess that's part of why it's such a remarkable, remarkable question to me is that it illuminates part of myself, that maybe that was how I was able to um, enter into those feelings empathetically is that I had experienced it myself. I didn't think right. of it that way at right. all. Right, right. Um, it's been devastating, of course. And we know so many people. My aunt and uncle were taken. I, I don't want to begin for myself, but there are so many people. We've all lost so many people in the theater community has been devastated. Yeah, I mean, I mean, not to go, I mean, there's so many lanes we could travel on right now, but you think back to the AIDS epidemic where that was uh, uh, an epidemic that that ravaged so many communities, but really particularly the theater community. Yeah. And um, and so it, it has awakened a lot of memories of a time of loss and and uh, and an incredible um, pride, I feel, in our community for the ways in which we rally together and love and heal and find ways to persevere and raise money and, you know, boots on the ground and emotionally to, um, to help heal. I, I want to talk a lot about, you know, when you, when you mention all these new people that you're working with, and yeah. I can only imagine 
how unbelievably thrilling it would be to be a young director and to be um, mentored and in collaboration with you. Um, and I love how much you love doing that and, and meeting these, these new creatives. But you have also been, repeat offender sounds like a negative, but you okay. and Duncan have been repeat offenders in terms of bringing work into the world. And Jesse Nelson, who I know you do a lot of, you know, uh, non-theater projects with as well, since, you know, movie stuff and TV stuff. Um, can you take us back to how did you and Duncan originally meet and what it is that keeps you coming back for more with each other? collaboratively yeah you know I just was at his house and um I hadn't been he has a new place he's living it's a town and a new child child and I was there with his daughter whom I hadn't seen in a while Mm -hmm. since almost since she was a newborn this pandemic yeah because yeah and I wasn't gonna go over to be with their child when you know I don't want to bring something into the house so um I thought, wow, we have seen each other so, so many stages of our lives um, that the, we met um, because we we're both Buddhists, because we both chant. And we met in 1999 because we chanted together at his apartment. And we had such a, there was no ulterior motive. We were just chanting and he wanted to talk. I was um, had responsibility in the arts division of the this sort of world peace grassroots organization we're part of the Soka Gakkai International. And um, he wanted to, he was talking about his career roles and artistic well, you know, we were just talking and that it was like a meeting of a lifetime. And we ended up, I left that night um, late. And as I was leaving, I was working on something in London with Laurie Anderson, which he thought was very cool. And I was also working on a, a show down at here, a showcase. And he said, as I was leaving, he said, is there a song in the show? And I said, oh, there's just this song that I wrote and it's nothing. And he said, is there a lyric I could see? And I went home and faxed it to him. And the next day, as I was leaving to London, he called me and we met for lunch. He said, meet me for lunch. And he gave me a CD of this song. And it was so beautiful. And I came back from London. It was Rob Sedgwick. Did you know Rob Sedgwick? Yeah. Was playing the lead in the show. Yes. And we were in this- acting class together. Well, there you are. Yes. So he said to me, we, we got this, this amazing Dylan song we've got to use for the show. And I said, I wrote a song with Duncan Sheik. And he said, oh, but we need an up-tempo song. And I said, well, maybe I could write an up-tempo lyric, having never aspired to write lyrics. And Duncan had never written songs with anyone else or thought about it. And so I, sat, I faxed him another, I remember he was at Sundance, I faxed him another lyric and he said it. And then we did a couple of these and he proposed we do an album together. This is within like a month or so of knowing each other. And then he came to see the show here and he loved the show. We had our two songs in it. And I said, we should create a piece of theater together. And he said, he made a face and said, musical theater. And I said, well, we could do something cool. And he said, I want the music to be relevant to the culture at large. And the minute he said it, I thought of Spring Awakening. Just so was thought, that a was that a, a a piece of literature that had always meant something to you, or did it just pop into your head? I, this is a little known fact that that my audition piece when I moved to New York from Princeton was Hanschen's monologue from Spring Awakening. So I known the play. I discovered. I grew up in Evansville, Indiana. 
And I would go to the, I was sick a lot as a kid and I hardly went to school and I went to the library and I found this book that was so sexy and racy and kind of forbidden spring awakening. So I had known about the play since I don't know when, like seventh grade. And um, I had loved the play. It was a treasured illicit text. And uh, I don't know, it just came to me. It seemed that the play was so full of these arias of longing of young people yearning and anguished and aspiring. And I thought that the place that young people have found released from an expression of those cries for generations has been rock music. So it seemed like a good fit. And, and forgive my naivete, because I don't know things that are like copyrighted and not copyrighted. Mm-hmm. So now you're these two young artists who are like, okay, let's agree. We'll do Spring Awakening. Okay. So then what happens? Like, do you have to get the rights? Do you go to Atlantic? Does that happen later? No, it was um, in public domain. Okay. It's old, old enough. enough. It's yeah, old. old enough. Okay. Everything so you... I've done, except this thing I'm now working on with Duncan and Our Lady J, which is based on a movie. Okay. It's a great musical work. Everything else has been in public domain. The Nightingale, the, you know, Got it. So you're not jumping through hoops and agents for that. And you're free to do what you want to do. Yes. And so in the early days, are you um, are you sitting at a table together facing each other with your computers, you know, across from each other? Or are you writing scenes and, and sending him pages? You mentioned the word facts earlier for our young people at home. <laughs> Google it. Um, <laughs> what was the... Uh, <laughs> like how does it go from ding spring awakening to the beginning of a creative process with a new partner um the first thing was he had reservations about musical theater and he said did he even like theater did he go see theater did he know no, theater but he he liked pinter mm-hmm. he had seen when he was like very young um sweeney todd where's duncan from where did he, he grow up? He was born in New Jersey, but he grew up in South Carolina. Okay. Hilton Head. Okay. Um, but he, um, I mean, Duncan is a very literate and articulate guy and Brown grad. And um, so he went to theater in that respect, but he, no, he was not someone who was clocking new musicals. Okay. Involved in that world. He said he'd hated in musicals when people talked and then they sang and then they talked and it felt arbitrary why they were talking and why they were singing. And that's, I had this idea. I remember calling him. I was standing on 72nd Street. We did have cell phones of a kind then. And, and they were huge. And yeah. then I said to him. Suitcase phone. <laughs> <laughs> um, I said, um, what if the songs function as interior monologues? So we went into the hearts and like Shakespearean soliloquies. I remember we had this whole talk about it. And he liked that idea. And so I began adapting the play, translating the play from German and writing lyrics. And I would fax him lyrics. And we, to this day, have a process where we don't work together in the same room. Okay. And we've been at a lot of retreats together or, or workshop, you know, you're all out of town together. So we're in the same hotel and we can be in the same, we've rented houses together, you know, and at New York station film. And like, I can be in one room working and he's in another. It's not like we avoid each other, but we both have solitary processes whereas for example and I know we're talking about Duncan when I work with Burt Backrack yeah I hand him a physical copy of the lyric he calls 
when he has something, you come by. I come back to his house. He's written bars of music across the handwritten, the copy, I've, not the handwritten, the, the typed, you know, the, the printed page I've given him. He's handwritten bars of music. And you sit at the piano and you go through it. And you're sitting next to Burt Bacharach. So you are losing your mind. You're You're already losing your mind. Exactly. He's turning your words into a Bacharach song. And and he's doing it verbatim. Like the first songs were completely verbatim. And then he said what I had given him to music verbatim. And then um, um, he'll say, like he'll set the, the verse. And he'll say, I hear this kind of thing. And then he starts singing this do to do to you. And then you pull out this, pulls out this cassette deck, um, like Sam Goody or wherever they sold these things. <laughs> and he, um, and I've gotten adept at it, like using this cassette deck. So we tape the different takes of, so I have all these cassettes of Bert singing to me. And then I bring it home and turn it to digital information and listen to it and write lyrics to that part and then integrate them into the whole. And then I bring that lyric back to his house. So you take the doobie-doobie-doo, make, he goes doobie-doobie-doo as he plunks out the, plunks out, Bert's not plunking, but he's creating music (laughs) at his piano. You take the doobie-doobie-doo, make it words. Yes. From the English language, go back and, and that's the album, Some Lovers. No, no, no. There's been, I mean, in the song, yes. I mean, it's not, it wasn't that fast. But yeah. there's like verses or chorus that are just as I wrote them. And then there are the dooby dooby doo words. Yeah. And then maybe because of the dooby doo words, you want to revisit what you'd written as the chorus. Or there's a second chorus or there's a bridge. And you go back and forth to his house and sitting at the piano. It's a whole old-fashioned great process where you're writing there's a Christmas song that concludes the Some Lovers album and we wrote it in that old-fashioned grill building way in the heat of July standing in his and he said to me at one point he kept revising the bridge and um, I have to say a hundred times maybe it was 80 times it's just continually the tiniest tweaks and every not every time but most every time he tweaked it I would change the lyrics just that much and he looked up at me at one point. He said, you are so patient with me. Carol never would have put up with it. Meaning his wife, Carol Bearsager. <laughs> so yeah, that's where we're I'm out. I'm done. Um, when you started out, I know you are someone, I mean, I remember this from our early days, like just a reader, a voracious reader yeah. and someone who consumed literature, um, uh, the classics, modern literature, did you love musicals? I never you know, knew you to be I like was, a musical theater. I wasn't. Maven. Yeah. I wasn't. And that's part of what Michael so brilliantly brought to Duncan and me. Is not just that he loved them, but he had such know-how and such expertise and such, he is a musical theater person. And he's, yes. he's other things than that. Yes. And he yes. had that in his bones. He loved pajama games. You know, I mean, he loved these shows that I didn't even know anything about. And um, and he knew how they work. And we taught each other. You know, we created that together. It was really a threesome. And Tom Hulse was hugely involved. Totally. So because you met Duncan, it yeah. became a musical, right? Rather than a, a, a reinvention of Spring Awakening for mm-hmm. American audiences in, in 2000. <laughs> um, so that's the kind of 
Because maybe had you not met Duncan, you would have continued to write plays, right? Who knows? My life turned this mystic corner. I never would have, and I never, I might never have had a career in a certain Mm -hmm. way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I broke for everything you just said, all of which is true. My, I owe my, the fact that I work and make a living in the theater to writing musicals and my career now, all my major projects are musicals. Yeah. Or they have musical, they're television shows with musical elements. But still, even if they're for the screen, it has that. So you, it turns out you love it. I mean, you're not just good at it, but you enjoy the making of it. I really do. And there are musicals I really deeply love and appreciate. Though I, though I will confess, I'm still not, I just did, I, it was actually a podcast with the um, associate music director of the Almeida production of Spring Awakening. Yeah. And he started quizzing, we did this great podcast. And then at the end, he started like quizzing Duncan and me, this fun quiz about musical theater history. And it was just like, you are asking the wrong people. <laughs> we have no idea. <laughs> Next, pass, pass. Next. Um, yeah, that's like me when we play heads up with my kids. And I'm like, I don't, uh, Mariah Carey. They're like, what? No. No, that's a hundred years ago, mom. Um, okay. I just want to, I just want to, before we fast forward, I want to understand how it got to the Atlantic because then it went to Broadway and it hasn't stopped. That's true. It, it, um, you know, we, Duncan and I began work on it. I thought we needed a director. We totally did. And I called Michael. He was my first client. I hadn't spoken to him in several years. And he had become this golden boy of New York theater. And I was, it was mystic, Alana. Here's another amazing little known fact. I called Michael, whom I hadn't spoken to. He picked up, was a landline. He picked up the phone. He said, I never pick up this phone anymore because Scott Rudin is always calling me. (laughs) Sorry. That is a sentence that works in so many different ways now. (laughs) I never pick up this phone because Scott Rudin is calling me. I remember. And I said, well, I'm so glad I got you. Mm -hmm. I just want to ask you something. I have this idea for a musical, a version of Spring Awakening. And I would be writing the songs with Duncan Sheik. We've begun writing songs together. And there was silence, total silence. And I said, said, Michael, he said, I can't believe you're saying this to me. I said, why? He said, two nights ago, I was out with my producer of Sideman. And I said to him, things have been going so great for me. I'm being offered so much work, but nothing I can really sink my teeth into. Why doesn't someone offer me Spring Awakening? Come on. I swear. Come on. I swear. Incredible. I swear. And within like three days, we were at Michael's house. Well, I came, Duncan was like an hour and a half late. And so yes. we were leaving and then Duncan showed up. And that's never people. happened again since, I'm sure. Never, the never only was, time he was in late. All these, in all these years. Wow. Um, Dunk, Michael took it to Annie Hamburger, who was running the La Jolla Playhouse. She commissioned it. We did a workshop there. Michael took it to, um, mentioned it to the roundabout. They agreed to do a workshop of it. I just talked to Todd Hames about this. Huh. I mean, over Zoom, but we just had this long talk about yeah. it a week ago. And Todd saw the workshop and fell in love with it. 
And he said, what do you want? And I said, I want a next workshop and a, a production. He said, you have it. And I told Michael, he said, you are crazy. He never said that. He would never say that. And he did say that. So we got our next workshop. We were announced. Um, and then we had to postpone because of Thoroughly Modern Millie. And then we were announced for a year later. And we were also announced at the Long Wharf. And then we had to postpone for Thoroughly Modern Millie tour. And then 9-11 that had hit and there were these terrible budget cuts and there was this season that roundabout had to cancel like five things. Right. You're one of them. And we were dead effectively in the water for like four years and we couldn't get it going anywhere. And suddenly the show that everyone who was in the room with wanted to produce, wanted to do the album. No one, it was like a script with German names and a rock CD and Tom Hulse came on board and he thought was confident we would get it going in London. Everyone passed. And um, we did Lincoln Center. Tom was able to get us a night at Lincoln Center in the, in the um, what that series is called. It's like this Great American Songbook series. And we did a reading and we invited a bunch of people and Ira Pittleman came on board to, was a partner, a financial partner. And then the Atlantic came on board. So that's okay. how we ended up with Atlantic. What Long a journey, yeah. what a journey. And then, wow. So that's how that happened. Eight years. And the cast that we, many of them were newcomers at the time, and Ooh. now they are household names. Um, can you talk a little bit about assembling? Because almost all of the kids went on to the Broadway production from the Atlantic production, as I recall. Yeah. There were some adult shifts in, in mm -hmm. casting. Um do you remember being in that room when it was being cast as each of those now household names came in the room? I remember every moment of it, to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. I remember it so acutely. And Leah and I just had dinner with Leah also last week. My saw in person, shockingly. And um, we were talking about her audition. She was 14. She had just turned 14, like a, a month or two before she was wearing, she told me what it was, whatever it was, like a brown something skirt, Urban Outfitters or something like right, that. Right. She came in, she sang, I don't know how to love him. And then she did the scene, you mean if you beat me with it? As a, She was 14. And it was just the floor dropped out from under me. It was so astonishing. Um, Jonathan, I remember him coming in. And singing, the first thing he did for us was to sing Left Behind. And he had closed his eyes the entire time. And he left, I wasn't going to tell another tale out of school. He left and we were all so moved. It was like, this is Melchior. And Kim Grigsby said, he cannot sing it. We cannot cast him. And we, and we and so we kept auditioning. That was, we didn't, Leah was part of it for seven years. So the workshops, the readings, the all the different, yeah. Jonathan came in before the final workshop at Baruch and then the Atlantic. Yeah. Um, John Gallagher joined at um, Lincoln Center in 2005. John Gallagher, we were so excited. I was so excited about his audition. He was an off-Broadway actor. He'd never been in a musical. And he, came, he just told us this story. And um, when we were, you know, we were doing the reunion, he came to the callbacks and he was so freaked out by the, by the skills of all these actors in the room. He thought he could never get it. He left, he panicked and left. 
and he called and his manager and I then he said it I remember it I remember we were all in the room and it was like where's John Gallagher and he had left and then Jim Carnahan like manned up and like got his manager on the phone and got the manager reached John and John came back and that was John Skyler Skyler I had talks with his dad, so did Michael, about him leaving NYU. Skylar had done it as a high school student when right. he was Long Island when we did it at Lincoln yes. Center. Yes. And then he was not in the Baruch workshop, and then we lost a cast member, and then we called Skylar. I mean, it was amazing. Lily. Lily was one of the last people we cast. She was a replacement um, for The Atlantic. Yeah. Um, Amazing. On and on. I, I want to just talk a little bit before I let you go about this. I mean, there's there's so much coming up that we're going to hear about mm-hmm. after this episode comes out of, of many, many projects that are in the burner, as we say, that are slowly mm-hmm. going to be out in the world and we can go see them. Um, but this but this uh, some lovers with Burt Backrick, I can already feel just in our conversation how special it was for you to work with him. What an admirer you are of him as an artist and a, and a human. Can you just for our audience list whoever comes to your to your head, the talent of people who are singing on this record, like off the top of your head, name name six of them. Jonathan and Leah, Kristen Chenoweth. Jennifer Holliday, um, R- Ramin Karamloo, um, Derek Klenna, Molly Gordon, Derek Klenna and Christy Altamari, Ashley Park and Conrad Ricamora. I mean, it's astonishing that we got. Yeah. And I felt so, um, this was a huge pandemic event for me. I felt like a pauper. Like I was going to these people whom I knew and like begging, like, can you come for no money? Can you record it in your closet? I mean, Ethan Slater, whom I had never met recording this song in his closet on Zoom with Zoom audio breaking down for two hours. And he kept repeating, he had kept having to sing the first line of the song and the line was, and so we're just starting out, aren't we? It was like, all I could do was not to laugh in his face. And, and Did you I, cast I, all these songs in your mind or did someone like like how does this happen it was i i, I yeah i cast it in my mind okay. i mean it was re- and really calling favors and then there are people who really wanted to do it and you're desperate for them to do it and you talk about them doing it um i don't know if i should mention my good friend and it just didn't work out mm-hmm. and, so, and then you're like scrambling i mean it was crazy getting ramin um recorded on the last possible day and we wanted to get it out by grammy deadline mm-hmm. And so that was why there was pressure because you had a deadline. Ultimately, yeah, we had yeah. a deadline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and after the two years it took to do it, suddenly it was like, we have to get this done now. And there's a musical, there's a show that Bert and I have been developing and that we've worked on and we thought was going into production on like in regional theaters and possibly coming for a limited run on Broadway. And it was like, all that fell apart, of course, like theater fell apart with the pandemic. Right. Like, no, we're going to make this album. Bird is 93. I, we had to bring it out. It was just like, this is time to get this done. Talk about, right. Talk about pressure more than anything yeah, beyond yeah. a Grammy deadline. It's his work needs to be out there. That's what I really felt. And that this is for him. And that's what, how I feel the Grammy nomination. It's 
I, I, I don't mean to be self-effacing. Of course, I love it. It's, it's beautiful. But for Bert, I feel like it's, a, you know, another honor. Also, to be in your 90s and to be prolific and making work and it what an inspiration. I mean, how how astonishing that he, that you were able to do this with him. And maybe there are more records in him or who knows. <laughs> but there was yeah. this this one and it happened and it happened yeah. with you. Yeah. And were you kind of set up by a label? Did you have a mutual friend of all the people? How did this marriage creatively happen? It happened because um, my music publishing, I needed to make a new music, music publishing, music publishers look after the rights of a songwriter the same way an agent looks after the rights of an actor or writer. Okay. So um, I had no music, my music publishing deal ran out during the zenith of Spring Awakenings. So it was like the only time I had good timing in my life. And I was suddenly, as opposed to meeting, you know, begging for a meeting somewhere, I was like in the CEO's offices and every meeting had this same turn where they would say, so you have this great relationship with Duncan, what composers can we introduce you to? And I would draw a blank. And then they would start talking about the composers, who I'm sure are great, who are, you know, were writing songs in American Idol. That was the moment for that. And I, and I said, well, Burt Backrack. And everyone was like, yeah, Raj, yeah, and who else? And then I was in one, I was in Warner Chapel and they said, oh, we've had Burt's guy here for 20 years. And a week later, Burt called me. And there you go. Yeah. You know, I just want to hop around for one second before I let you go. I saw Alice by heart. I loved it so much. Um, And what is really astonishing, there are these group of kids. I don't know what is in the water, in the water fountains at Harvard Westlake High School in -hmm. California. I've had probably all of them on the podcast at this point between Ben Platt and Catherine Gallagher and uh, Molly Gordon and Beanie Feldstein. I mean, when you, I mean, the archive of videos of those school musicals alone, it's just an insane thing that so much talent is in that one high school. But what some people may know and some people may not know is that Molly Gordon, who happens to be Jesse Nelson's daughter, um, is part of this group of extraordinary young musical theater artists um, who really are the next generation of musical theater. And I, I love that Ben Platt had been in these original concerts of that piece. And now he and Noah are a couple, Noah Galvin, who then ended up doing the New York production. It's so, um, it's so inspiring to be around all of them because of how uncynical they are and mm-hmm. how passionate they are about musical theater. And so when I think about the directors you're working with, when I think about that crew of young people and beyond who are who are filling our stages with just really incredible work, it's kind of astonishing. It is. You know, I saw those musicals at Harvard West, like with them. <laughs> and I saw Did them. your kids go there also? No, they didn't. Okay. They went, okay. They went to Campbell Hall. But okay. they but, but um I went to see Molly and well Molly was not at, at Harvard Westlake. She was at um oh shoot, what's that school called? Stretch with the Seas, the more progressive school where I saw her in um, Crossroads? Yes, Crossroads. Yeah. She, she did um 
Sunday in the Park with George. She did Chicago with Ben. She did all these shows. But I saw them do Into the Woods. I saw Beanie steal the show, Ben, Catherine, all of them. And um, they were all our cast in Alice. So yeah. we actually have a film of them doing the first readings of Alice. Darren Chris was part of it. Oh, that's we right. Remarkable this remarkable team of people on Molly's was with it all those years. Yeah. And, and that was also, I mean, I just think you have such an incredible way of revitalizing and reimagining this thing we think we know. Um, <laughs> and then you wrote a companion book about Alice in Wonderland. I mean, the way you are examining texts and putting out your spin on all these things, what a canon Mr. Seder oh, um, and you. poetry. I mean, it's just cool. So I can't, I mean, I can ask you for another little known fact. You've already been so generous along the way. If there's anything, I guess, maybe I'll ask you to be specific to close out. Is there a little known fact you can share about what at this point in your life is your kind of personal artistic mission? Because if you felt like doing nothing but reading books on the beach for the rest of your life, we would say you've given us enough. That's fair. Um, but you seem to still really want to make work and create stuff to put in the world. Oh, I'm driven. Yeah. yeah. I wanna, you know, I had this determination for eight years, the spring awakening to touch the troubled heart of youth around the world. I make determinations and I want, you know, to develop the vitality of my life so I can impart that to my work. My project right now, I have a lot of projects on my plate. I mean, I really have a crazy amount. I could move the suit camera around and you would lose your mind at the piles yeah. of projects. But I would, I've determined this New Year's, which I've never done and I've never fully pursued, but I wanted to bring out a, a book of poems mm. and um, about the plague that I've been in this, I mean, I know we're like shifting topics. I could talk about all these musicals and projects I'm working on, but that's a little known fact. I have a novel I've been working on for many years that I've worked on a lot through the pandemic. So I have my private writerly things. Mm -hmm. I sit and read in that room. I mean, I, I, what can I do? I mean, I don't, I don't know if these are little known facts, but I've, well, they're, they're we've offered a few facts turned into, um, life-changing pieces of art for people to go see. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Alana. It's such a joy to me to see you and to have this conversation. And you're, you're so incisive. These questions are so remarkable and the breadth of knowledge you're bringing, even about me, let alone the theater. It's incredible. Wow. I appreciate that. Um, all right, my friend, we'll get back to work. You've, you've <laughs> flapped long enough. Get okay. back to it. Um, okay. I love you. I I'll love see you, so you soon. Bye. Bye. more thing so many of you have asked how do you donate to the podcast well it could not be easier just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations instructions are clearly laid out and i'm so grateful to you in advance for any donation you choose to make but regardless i have loved love love making the previous 200 and something episodes for you i can't wait to make 200 more i wish you a beautiful day stay healthy be safe until next time. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So there we go.
episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.